Cool. Thank you very much. All right, now we're going to spend some time studying the Bible together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. We'll be starting in verse 33. We'll be studying through a little bit of chapter 6 as well. We've been studying Luke, and so that's where we are, but we're actually launching a new series. So we're launching a new series on spiritual practices called Fasting and feasting. Fasting and feasting goes along with our resurrection prayer guide and the instructions on fasting here. And then what we're going to do is we're going to study all the biblical Old Testament feasts on Sundays. So if you don't know this, there was a a rhythm laid out in the Old Testament where God said, I want you to have parties throughout the year to remember that I'm a good, saving, gracious God who forgives you and loves you and takes care of you. So God gave them a whole schedule of parties. And then he said, I want you to have a weekly party. It's called the Sabbath, where you also remember my provision and my care for you. And so what we want to do is we want to study these Old Testament parties and extract from that the principles of, hey, we should still be a people who have parties to celebrate God's goodness. Now, as Christians, we're not bound by the Old Covenant. We're under a New Covenant. And yet what we want to see is that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything in the Old Covenant. So we can always turn and look at the Old Covenant and say, man, there's all this rich, deep, beautiful stuff here for us to study. So before we go into the next seven weeks studying Leviticus, everybody's favorite book of the Bible, right? Before we get to Leviticus, we're going to study this one passage in Luke where Jesus talks about the subject of fasting and feasting and Sabbath. And then we'll launch into our Old Testament study to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of these things. Um, What we see in the world, just kind of at 50,000 feet, and we think about fasting and feasting, is that we all live in the same world, which is a world of both glory and brokenness. Only Jesus, and I would say only the Christian faith, can make sense of that tension. We live on the ground level in a world of both fullness and and emptiness. We live in a world of good days and bad days. And again, only Jesus can make sense of that. Paul clarifies that Jesus is the secret. He's the mystery that unlocks what it means to be a human being who lives with both pain and celebration. He says this is the mystery. This is the secret of living in plenty and in want. In Philippians 11, 12, 13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When I first became a Christian at 17, I thought that meant sports. I've since learned that it means what it said in the verse before that, living in plenty and living in want. We can live in both worlds. We can live in fasting and in feasting, because of Christ. He's the fulfillment of these things. So as we focus over the next several weeks on spiritual practices, the point is Jesus. The point is that Jesus would be more magnified in our communities and in our own hearts. Again, we're not trying to impress God by the practices that we do. We don't read the Bible in the morning and say, God, bless me more because I've read the Bible. No, we run to the Bible because he's our only hope. And we're hungry and we're desperate for him. The same way we fast and we feast because Jesus is our only hope. So flip to Luke chapter 5, and we'll introduce Luke chapter 5 and the traditions of the Pharisees with a little story before I read it. Um, There's a story that my old pastor told many times, and I love the story. He talked about a daughter who was learning how to cook. Her mom was teaching her how to cook a roast, 
And her mom taught her how to cook the roast and went through the steps of what spices she would put on it and what pan she would put it in and what temperature she would cook it at. And then she said, and you always cut the roast this way, uh, this, this part of it, and this is how you do it. And, and the daughter was like, well, why, why do you cut the roast? Why don't you just cook the whole thing? She's like, well, I mean, that's just what we do. I, my mom taught me how to do it. Like, this is how you do it. You cut the roast. My mom taught me the recipe. This is it. And the daughter was like, I, I still don't get it. Like, you're wasting this part of the roast. Like, it doesn't make sense. And mom was like, just ask your grandma, and maybe she'll know. I don't know. This is just what we always did. And so a few weeks later, she was able to ask grandma, grandma, in the recipe with the roast, why do we cut the roast in this place every time we cook the roast? And grandma said, oh, well, I always did that because my pan was too small for a full roast. It didn't, it didn't fit, so I had to cut it so it would fit. Your mom has a different pan. She could cook the whole roast if she wants to. And I love that illustration because that's where we live so often in religion, right? We don't actually understand what we're doing or why. We don't get the point of it. We're just going through the motions. We're like, well, my, my teacher told me to do this. I don't know why. I don't know what it means. I'm just doing it. I'm just doing the thing I saw somebody else do. And Jesus continually confronts that with the Pharisees. He says, there's an, there's an essence. There's a story that the Old Testament was telling. And I'm telling the same story. And we may even change the recipe a little bit, but it's the same story. Make sure you know what the story is. Make sure you know who it's pointing to. So let's look at the text, Luke chapter 5, verse 33. They said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. So they're pointing out a, a difference, right? The disciples of Jesus eat and drink. They feast. They party. And yet the disciples of John the Baptist and the disciples of the Pharisees were stricter, harsher, more fasting. And so they're asking them about this. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. I'm going to stop there. We'll read the rest of it in a minute, leaving you hanging. The suspense, right? We'll read the rest of it, but what I want to just focus on before we pray is this. Jesus is doing something different, and he acknowledges that. He says, I am doing something different, and it's good. Jesus invites us to come to him, to make him our foundation, and then our practices should follow from there. And so I want to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to hear what he's saying in his word, to understand it, to not be rebels for the sake of rebellion, that just throw out traditions not understanding them, but also to not be people that are bound by traditions and don't really understand what we're doing. This is a tricky line to walk, and we need the Holy Spirit to help us to do that. So let me pray that he'd meet us here. God, we ask for your help, for your Holy Spirit to transform us, to speak to us, that we would be good listeners to your word, that we'd understand the context, that we would listen to your voice, to your authority. Teach us, we pray. Transform us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is fasting and feasting. Both of those practices, as spiritual practices, are fulfilled in Jesus. And as I said, they point to a, a deeper reality 
of just life, right? We have good days and bad days. And Jesus gives meaning to our good days and our bad days so that we can have spiritual practices where we say, you know what, I'm going to have a discipline of I'll have times of going without where I'll spend time in prayer, and then I'll have times of celebrating and partying. We build that into our rhythm as we worship together as a church, right? Even the liturgy of how we do a worship gathering every week, we're going to invite you into lament and grief over the brokenness of the world and your own sin. And then we're going to invite you to sing and clap and celebrate the grace that we have in Jesus. That's just a regular part of our rhythm of how we know God through both fasting and feasting, through both celebration and grief. So these rhythms are very normal, and we're calling ourselves towards this again for the sake of lifting up Jesus. I think why this is an important series is we, again, I I joked, everybody's favorite book is Leviticus. If you've never read the Bible, that was a joke. People don't actually like Leviticus, okay? Very difficult book of the Old Testament to read. But in the midst of all the strangeness and difficulty in Leviticus, we've got these parties, So in the midst of all these other strange ceremonies, God says, I want you to have some parties to remember me. And so he calls us to this. And so we want to practice the sense of a God that invites us into celebration, into fasting and feasting, but we don't want to fall off the horse on either side, right? The one extreme is just being a rebel that throws out all traditions. The other extreme is becoming kind of new legalists that are like, ah, we should do every single thing that's in the old covenant. And we get all mixed up about that. There is change, and there's also sameness. So how do we understand what's different and what's the same between the Old and the New Covenant? We want to look at the Old Testament and understand how it's fulfilled in Jesus so we can learn from all the richness there. Because we have one whole Bible, and it all goes together. Another reason this is important to understand is in our world that's being so fractured religiously right now, there's a resurgence of Jewish cults. There's a resurgence of Christian-ish cults that say you need to do all of these Old Testament things or you're not as impressive to God as these Gentiles that just believe in Jesus and obey him. So we need to be able to defend ourselves over these things. If you're struggling with that, if you're right now going down YouTube rabbit holes, studying the Hebrew Roots movement or the black Hebrew Israelites, I would love the privilege of talking to you about this because it's grabbing hold of a lot of people's hearts right now in our communities. And Jesus offers a better way. And so I'd love to talk to you about that. I've studied it quite a bit, and we'll touch on some of it through this series, but you may still have unanswered questions that you want me to deal with that I'm not getting to quite the level of detail uh, that you're hungry for. So please talk to me if you're interested in that. Um, What we see as we look at Leviticus 23, and that's where we'll be over the next several weeks, is we see this rhythm of parties and festivals that God calls them to. And the first thing he calls out to them is, hey, make sure you remember the weekly party, the weekly festival of the Sabbath rhythm. And so in our Luke text today, we're going to see Jesus dealing with us. We're going to have two Sabbath texts and one fasting and feasting story, and we're going to see how Jesus kind of mashes all this stuff together. And, And here's the outline that will follow. Number one, Jesus is our party. Jesus is our party. He's the point of it. That's what we saw already in that first couple of verses that we read about the bridegroom and the wedding party. Jesus is the party. Secondly, we see that Jesus is our Sabbath. He is our Sabbath hope. Sabbath means rest. It's also a weekly practice, but ultimately what it means is resting. And so we rest from our works in Jesus. Jesus is our Sabbath. And then number three, we'll see that Jesus is our healing. Jesus is our healing. He's the one that makes us whole. He's the one that restores us. He got into a lot of trouble with the Jews of his time for healing on the Sabbath. But he's like, that's, that's the point. 
of all these religious practices is, is healing, is being more whole, is, is coming to God. Jesus is our source of healing. So number one, Jesus is our party. Jesus is our party. So we see this in Luke 5, 33 through 39. So starting in verse 33, we already read this verse. It says, they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so did the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. If you've read the New Testament, he's accused of this a lot. He's not like grumpy enough. They're like, hey, religious people should be grumpy and sad, but y'all are happy. What is going on here? They're, They're confused. They're disoriented by his celebration. Now, in context, he had just called Levi the tax collector, right? So there's other things they're bothered about. They're like, you're also hanging out with sinners, right? And that comes up more and more in the rest of Luke. And we'll come back to that as we come back to Luke after Easter. So they're bothered. They're confused. Verse 34, Jesus said to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? In the ancient Middle East, the bridegroom was the point. The groom was the point of the party party was all about him. In our culture, it's all about the bride, right? The wedding is the bride's day. So you you flip that from Middle Eastern culture, and he was the point of the party, right? He was like the birthday boy at the birthday party. It was all, the whole party was for the groom. And Jesus is saying, "I'm, I'm the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament longing and hopes of this loving husband, God, who loved his bride, Israel. I'm here. It's party time. He's saying he, he's the center of the party. He's the point of the party. He's what makes the party the party. He's like, of course we're going to be celebrating because I'm here. I'm with them. Verse 35, he foreshadows dark days are coming. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. Now, just to clarify, fasting is not just a discipline where you say, I'm going to give up something or not eat food. Fasting is also just a spontaneous feeling throughout Scripture. When you, when you read it and track it all through Scripture, there were like set fasts where people said, I'm going to do this on purpose as an act of worship or as an act of humility. But there's also times when you're just sick to your stomach and you can't eat, when you're heartbroken. You, just, you don't want to eat. You don't want to smile. You don't want to be with people. You don't want to have fun because you've lost someone you loved or because you just got a diagnosis or some terrible disease or whatever it may be circumstantially. That meaning of fasting is also there in Scripture. That's a normal part of it. So we kind of have spontaneous fasting, like I just, I'm just heartbroken. And then we have the discipline of fasting, saying I'm going to take some time to express on the outside what I know is true. I'm not necessarily feeling it that strongly right now, but it's a kind of spiritual discipline I'm going to go through. So he's saying this feeling of emptiness And longing is going to come strong on the disciples when he's gone, when he dies. And so again, it's in perspective, the normal ups and downs of life. We have good days and bad days. As people who believe in Jesus, he's encouraging us to connect our good days and our bad days with him. To say when we have good days, Jesus, you're the giver of all good gifts. Thank you. Praise God. And when we have bad days, say, Jesus, I can't wait till I'm face to face with you and you wipe away every tear. That's where we live. We live in the already, but not yet. Already we have hope that Jesus has forgiven us and that day is coming where there will be no more crying and no more pain. And yet we are not yet there. We're not at that final party that Revelation talks about. And so we live with the ups and downs. So he's saying, yeah, we're partying now because I'm here, but I'm going to be gone and then they're going to fast more. It's coming. 
I think in this text, and again, I'm relying on the rest of the Bible as well, it's calling us to a normal rhythm of ups and downs, parties and tears, and all of those are opportunities to praise Jesus and to worship him. He starts to tell a parable as well. He also told them a parable, verse 36, no one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new and the piece from the new will not match the old. So think of like a cotton fabric or something you might have. You might have jeans or a t-shirt that shrinks up a lot, right? So different fabrics shrink different amounts. But his point is this, you might have an old worn out piece of fabric and you wouldn't tear up your new uh, shirt to take a patch and put it on the old one, right? Like that doesn't make sense. You're getting things out of order. Plus it wouldn't match. So really, he's kind of talking about common sense here, but his emphasis is the mismatch of old and new. They don't really go together, and they can't get along. Something that's old and stretched out is not going to get along well with something that's still stretchy and new. He goes on with this illustration, kind of turns it to another similar illustration about wineskins. Verse 37, no one puts... Uh, new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. So kind of same concept, you know, cotton shrinks and, and all this. Leather is the same way. If you've had good leather shoes that you've worn forever, you can kind of break them in and they can kind of stretch and be shaped to your feet. Uh, but then there comes a day where they can't stretch anymore, right? <laughs> the leather gets worn and worn and worn and it has no more elasticity. Well, the wine skins, it would be like a bag made of leather that they would keep the wine in. And they'd put the wine in it and the wine would expand and the leather would stretch with it. But then if you started again with new wine in the old stretched out wine skin, what would, what would happen? You'd have an explosion, right? I grabbed a picture online of a, a skin. This is actually a skin that he's churning uh, some other food in, but it's the same basic technology as a wine skin. And so they're basically a leather bag that would stretch and stretch and stretch and stretch. And Jesus is saying this new covenant is going to blow up the container of the old covenant. There's change. So again, the question is, all right, Jesus is saying there's change. What's the same and what's different? You have to read the whole New Testament to get that, right? So I'm just going to summarize this. And we've talked about this some over the last several weeks. The summary is it's the same morality and it's the same hope of redemption. The morality is summarized in the moral commands of the New Testament. It's summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's summarized in the fruit of the Spirit. We should love people and be kind and be gentle. Uh, we should flee sexual immorality, it says in the New Testament and the Old Testament, right? there. the same moral guidelines, and it's the same hope of God saving us. God has got to save us. He's our only hope. So in the Old Testament, that was Yahweh, Jehovah, God. He's our only hope. He's the only one that can save us. If you call on him, he'll save you. In the New Testament, Jesus comes and says, that's me. I'm here. I've come to save you. So it's the same story, same morality. What's different? Well, the ceremonies. The ceremonies have changed. And Hebrews 8 talks about this. Hebrews 9, Hebrews 10. Colossians 2 talks about this. The whole book of Galatians talks about this. Again, if you're kind of stuck in one of these cults that's trying to draw you back into Old Covenant practice, I'd love to talk to you about it more because it's a whole systematic theology train we could go down. I don't think that's everything that this text is about, but it's alluding to a lot of that. So know that it's the same story, but a different system. The way I said it several weeks ago is that we have set building instructions in the Old Testament. 
And now that Jesus is here, we're not building the same set. We're not building the same theater, but we're telling the same story. There's still a holy God and not holy people that need that God to be gracious and forgive us and transform us. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So he's saying, we got a whole new set. we got a whole new system. Same morality, same story of salvation by God alone. Yet there's now a new covenant, a new covenant. He describes that explicitly, as I said, in Hebrews 8. So Jesus isn't disrespecting the old covenant, but he is saying things are changing. Things are changing in Christ. So back to the point here, he says, new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. So we got a new thing here, and we need new systems, new wineskins. And then he says in verse 39, and no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. He's saying there's going to be a resistance to change. The Pharisees and the Jewish leaders are like, I don't know about this. We don't trust him. To the extreme that eventually they killed Jesus over their differences. So what's the point? Jesus is our party because Jesus is our party. We should be party people. Seems like a silly application, but that's actually it. We should be people who celebrate. We should be happy people. We should all be, also be people who grieve. We should also be people who fast. So as I've said, we're, we're going to be fasting people and we're going to be feasting people. The way James describes it at the very end of James, he's like, if you're struggling, ask for help and pray. And if you're doing well, praise God. That's the simplest summary I can find in the New Testament. It's in James chapter 5. I would say as we practice the disciplines of parties and the disciplines of going without, we do both of those things for the glory of God. And so let me talk about fasting for a minute and our resurrection prayer guide. The encouragement with this prayer guide, again, is not to impress God by hurting yourself. It's not about punishing yourself. Here's the way I would describe it. We all live with the emptiness and the longing of wishing we were in heaven. We're just not there yet. The war has been decisively won by Jesus in his resurrection, but he's still taking ground. And we're just not in heaven yet. We long for everything to be perfect, but we're just not there yet. And so here's the thing. We can spiritually know that Jesus is our only hope. And yet day to day, we stuff that emptiness with Netflix and social media and eating and distractions and relationships or whatever else it is. So I think the spiritual discipline of fasting can be really helpful because it can say, ah, like I know God wants me to eat, but maybe I'll eat differently. I'll give up something or one meal a day or something like that. I might give up coffee or I might give up this other thing that I've kind of been relying on to stuff the emptiness in my heart. And I'll probably go back to it after this is all over because it's a good thing. It's a gift from God, but I'm just going to give it up temporarily so I can focus on the reality of that whole, right? Like when, when you go for that coffee, and it's not there. You're like, oh God, I need this. No, no, you're enough, Lord. Help me. And it becomes a, a prayer discipline in your life of whether it's Netflix. I'm, I'm bored. I feel empty. I need to watch another movie. No, I decided I was going to go without that for a few weeks. I'm going to spend some more time praying and recognizing that Jesus is my only hope. That's what it's about. Again, you're not trying to hurt yourself to impress God, but you're giving something up temporarily to acknowledge that ache, that longing that's already there, that emptiness that you feel, and say to Jesus again, Jesus, you're my only hope. Now, what about partying? Uh, Number one, because Jesus is the party, we should throw parties. So I want to encourage you guys over the next several weeks to throw parties. 
Throw a party, celebrate God's goodness by celebrating, feasting, having a good time with your friends. Here's the definition I would give for feasting or partying to the glory of God. It's the art of introducing the future delight of seeing Jesus face to face, introducing that into the present. So feasting and partying for the glory of God is the, is the art of, of delighting and seeing him face to face and kind of bringing a taste of that into the now and saying, you know what, we're, we're going to have an ultimate party. Someday we're going to see him and it's going to be so good. It's a way of saying God is good. He saved me. He loves me. And so we're going to feast. We're going to have fun because of that. Um, religious people tend to be really bad at partying. I don't know if you know this. It's a discipline that we need to practice. The other question is how should we party? Um, how should we party? Well, don't sin, right? A lot of times partying implies drunkenness. Christians are called to not be drunk, right? To not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So don't sin, but you know, there's a lot of fun you can have without sinning, right? And we need to push that line and celebrate and to have fun. And Jesus then says specifically, when you're having that fun and you're having banquets, you're having dinners, you're inviting people over, you're having some kind of celebration. He says in Luke 14, 12, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But instead, would you give a feast or you have a party Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. So here's the idea. Have parties and invite people that are worn out and hopeless and need to be encouraged. That's a pretty simple application, right? Have some parties for some hopeless people that God has put in your life. Now, things might get weird if you like call someone up this afternoon. You're like, hey, can you come over? And they're like, you think I'm hopeless, right? So you might want to wait. A day or two, let this wear off. But in all seriousness, who can you bring hope to? Who can you encourage? Who's sad? Invite them over for a party. That's what Jesus commands us to do. Be people who practice the discipline of fasting and feasting. Okay, number two, Jesus is our Sabbath. We'll go a little more quickly through these other points because we don't have as much theological foundation to lay here. But in chapter 6, verse 1, on a Sabbath, it says, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them together in their hands. So uh, wheat comes with a little husk, a kernel, and so that's why sometimes it's threshed with a fork. But you can also grab these grains and kind of rub them together and you separate it, kind of like a sunflower seed and and the the shell. It's that kind of thing with wheat. And so they grab the wheat grains, they rub it, and the husk comes off and they can eat the grains. And so the Old Testament Pharisees were like, you can't do that because that's farming on the Sabbath. And Jesus and his guys were like, no, we just, we were just putting food in our mouth. That's all we're doing. We're not farming, you know, we're just, we're just eating food. But here's the explanation he gives. It's interesting. He goes even deeper into the Old Testament to defend what they're doing. So some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what's not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him. So this is King David, verse 4, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence. So the ceremonial bread that only the priests were supposed to handle, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat. He also gave it to those with him. Verse 5, and he said to them, the son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what's he doing here? He's saying, well, sometimes exceptions were made when, when people were hungry. It's like, here's the Sabbath. 
And God gave his Old Testament people lots of ceremonial ways to tell the story, right? As I've described as set building, building the theater, the stage on which they would broadcast the message. But Jesus is like, but like hungry is, is more important than the ceremonies, right? There's this hierarchy where Jesus continually says that the moral and the human needs were more important than the ceremonies. Jesus does this in Matthew 23, where he says, yeah, it's, it's good that you tithe your spices, but you're not loving people. And that's more important, right? Another ceremonial versus human framework. The way I would describe it is this way. God loves people more than ceremonies. God loves people more than ceremonies. Now we can test my thesis. This is my thesis. We can look to the other parallel passages in Mark and Matthew. So same story, Mark and Matthew throw in other details, right? This is what Mark 2.27 says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So he's like, the point of the Sabbath is to refresh, heal, make whole, rest, man, humans. The Sabbath was a gift from God to, to heal and recover humanity. Man wasn't built just for the Sabbath. The point's not the Sabbath, right? The point's not the day. The point's not the worship service. The point is God pouring out his grace into the people. And we continually flip that around. Here's the way he says it in Matthew. Matthew 12, 7 is also a parallel, same story. He said, if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is saying in Matthew, this story is about God wanting mercy more than sacrifice. Again, it's a priority. The Old Testament ceremonies were great. We don't want to disrespect those. It was good stuff. He was telling a good story. But Jesus is like, loving people is more important. I desire mercy. The translation of mercy is the Hebrew word chesed. It's that word that's like um, his loving kindness, his grace, his unconditional love. God's like, I want that more out of you than your sacrifices. That's why when we talk about spiritual disciplines, we just have to hammer this again and again. Do I want you practicing spiritual disciplines? Yes. I even think practicing an old-fashioned weekly Sabbath is really good for people. I would love to call the whole church to that. But what I want is for you to delight in God and his grace to you and then show that grace to other people. And these spiritual disciplines, these ceremonies, these sacrifices should be means of grace by which you sit at the feet of Jesus. Say, Jesus, I need you. Thank you for giving yourself to me. That's, that's the point. Jesus is saying, this is what these things are really about. So the other side of this concept of a weekly Sabbath, a weekly feast day, a weekly pause, a weekly rest, the whole point of it is that we would receive from God. And Jesus is the fulfillment of this, we're told very explicitly in Hebrews 4. It's the most important cross-reference that says Jesus himself is our Sabbath rest, right? We rest from the works of trying to achieve and trying to make our life cleaned up and good enough, and only Jesus can make our life good enough. So Hebrews 4 spells that out really clearly. The whole book of Hebrews talks about this Old Covenant, New Covenant dynamic, but it really emphasizes it in Hebrews 4. Jesus is our rest, That's what Sabbath means. He's our pause. He's our recovery. He's the one that saves us. He paid the penalty for our sin by dying on the cross for us. 
And he also gives us the gift of a perfect life, a perfect righteousness. Through his life lived in our place and through his resurrection power, he restores us. So Colossians 2 says, in context of the work of Jesus on the cross, says, therefore, don't let anyone pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So these, th- these things don't earn us favor with God. It's Jesus dying on the cross. That's the point. And then our practices, our ceremonies, the sacrifices that we make, the spiritual things that we go through to try to get to know him better, those are just ways of us listening to him and sitting at his feet. I was talking uh, with Chris Johnson, our ministry intern, about this. He just got to visit Israel uh, on a ministry trip with UMHB. And there he is, eating a meal in Israel. So that's an actual real Jewish meal taking place right there. Um, Now, this was not a Shabbat dinner, a Sabbath dinner, but they did get to have a Sabbath dinner in the home of some Jews there in Israel. And he and I were just talking about how we so often think of Sabbath meaning stuff you cannot do instead of thinking of it as feeding and reviving, right? Jesus is saying, no, it makes sense that we eat grain. It makes sense that David ate from the ceremonial bread because that's the point of the Sabbath is to revive us, to give us life. And so here's how I would kind of make an application out of a weekly Sabbath. Rest, have fun, remember Jesus. And if you're unsure about what's okay and what's not, just don't sin, okay? Just don't sin. Just keep it at that. Don't sin. Follow the moral commands. Those are the same between the Old and the New Covenant. Don't sin, but rest. Be revived. Eat. Feast. Celebrate. Again, in Leviticus 23, it says the weekly Sabbath is the first feast. And then the rest of them are these weekly feasts. Now, Christians do disagree. Some Christians would say um, because the Sabbath as a weekly practice is not explicitly repeated in the New Testament. Some Christians are like, we're totally not bound by that. It's an old covenant thing. Other Christians would say, well, it's on the list of 10 commandments. So we are still bound by it, right? And we have the Christian tradition of kind of moving the Sabbath to Sunday and practicing it on Sunday because of the resurrection. And so just so you know, I know some of you come from different backgrounds. Christians are all over the spectrum on that. But I think they all would agree, all Christians agree, that something like that practice is a good idea. Because explicitly we're commanded in Hebrews 10 to not give up meeting together. We should gather with the saints once a week, right? Like that's a good thing. So that's commanded. And then we see these fulfillments in Hebrews 4 of like Jesus is the real fulfillment of this weekly Sabbath rest. So I personally think it's a good idea to practice a weekly Sabbath, but I think we have all kinds of freedom. Again, because of Jesus. The point is rest. Can you set aside a day a week to just rest, be revived, be encouraged? In all the debates, I I love to joke that it's the one of the Ten Commandments that is debated the most among Christians, and it's also the easiest commandment to keep. This is the commandment. Don't do anything. Like, that's it. Have some fun. Have a weekly party, right? Like, like, why is that so hard for us? You know, like, why, why is that such a huge difficulty for us? We don't want to, again, go to Colossians 2 where we're judging each other for, oh, well, how do you keep this out? How do you, we don't want to go there at all, right? But I do think it's a good practice to be called to. Even if you don't believe it's explicitly commanded in the New Testament, science is just pointing out, this is good for us, right? To have that weekly rhythm of rest. 
um, people that practice this generally live longer and have less stress. So I would just want to push you towards something like a weekly Sabbath practice, a rhythm in your life where you worship, you gather with the saints, you take a nap, right? Have a party, have fun with your family. Those are the kinds of things I want to call us to as the people of God. And if you have more questions about it theologically, we could go down the rabbit hole of dispensational theology and covenant theology. I'd love to talk to you for hours about that, just not right now. Okay. Um, The third point is Jesus is our healing. Jesus is our healing. He's the one that helps us, that restores us. We were broken. We were sinful. We're an object of wrath. We're told in the scriptures, and now he restores us. He makes us whole. And he is illustrating this with this Sabbath story in Luke 6, verse 6. On another Sabbath day, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Again, he's reemphasizing, what's the point of this thing? It's to give life. It's to heal. And so in verse 10, after looking around at them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored. But they, Pharisees, religious leaders, they were filled with fury. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Again, you know the end of the story. They kill him. But Jesus is saying, and Part of the point of the Sabbath, our religious practices, who we are as the people of God, is to heal, is to help each other. And we've talked about this before. We, we believe God can heal supernaturally. For Jesus, he, he is divine. He heals left and right. He's displaying this all the time. For us, we would say it's not really an everyday experience. If you're sick, we'll pray for you. Uh, if you come to the elders and ask for prayer, if you're battling illness, we'll, we'll pray for you. And we believe God can heal, and we have no problem doing that, Right? But what I want to point your attention to is not getting caught up in the miraculous healings from a disease, but the kind of day in, day out healings that Christians are called to of comforting the lonely, weeping with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, walking with each other through pain and suffering, helping each other. That's the day in, day out healing that we're called to. Sometimes we pray and and people are miraculously healed. We've seen that. But that's, that's not normal, right? By definition, a miracle is something unusual and weird. And so day in, day out, we're called to walk like Jesus and and heal and restore each other and help each other in simple little ways. We prioritize helping and healing people because Jesus helped us first, because Jesus gave us ultimate healing in Christ. So again, we talked about this last week. If you believe that Jesus has helped and healed and restored you, then you should be a person that helps other people. You, you care about their physical healing, about their physical well-being. You care about making people's lives better. Jesus is pretty clear. We can't heal everybody everywhere all the time. So, so the question is, okay, who's the person near you that needs help? Just last week, uh, I was with a, a friend, a pastor from Austin. We were having lunch. He put his arm around me after we had lunch, and he prayed for me. I was like, man, thank God for, for this friend these prayers. It was so restorative for me. And as a pastor, it's all often 
I was going to say always, not always, often, my job to pray for you, right? To encourage you in the Lord, to pray for you. And so I have these little moments where another pastor prays for me. I'm like, oh, this is so good. It's so restorative to have someone put their arm around you and say, man, I care for you. I want to pray for you. Know that you're not alone. It's going to be okay. We have countless opportunities to do that for people. I want to deputize you and, and unleash you to be that for people. When we talk about joining a group, that's part of what we're describing. We're talking about living life with other Christians, saying, hey, I'm just going to show up in this living room. You know, this is weird, and you know, one week the Bible study might feel a little lame, but we're just going to be there for each other. We're going to pray for each other. We're going to encourage one another. Do you have those kind of relationships? I would ask you to pray and, and look around you to who God has placed close to you that, that needs that healing, that help, that encouragement. Talk about groups. If, if, if you don't see that, if you're isolated, um, join a group. Go ahead and, and make that start happening, right? Probably there are people nearby, neighbors, family members, people in the workplace that, that need that already from you. But if, if you're living an isolated life, if you're new to the area, and join a group. That's a great way to get more involved. Sign up to serve as we talk about. There's opportunities, all kinds of opportunities that we schedule and promote as a church because we want to row in that direction together. But God can lead you to do those things organically in your own life. Um, you can serve. Uh, pray for us also. One of the things we're praying about uh, as a leadership team at the church is just more opportunities to corporately come together and serve the city. So we're praying about that. Would you pray with us that we could just kind of be known publicly for being those kinds of people that care about the brokenness and the hurting in the city as we proclaim the goodness of Jesus in the world? Um, because Jesus has healed us ultimately in Christ, because he set us free from our sin, we want to be the kinds of people that speak of that good news of Jesus death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. But we also want to be the kind of people that just help those around us that are healing and helping and encouraging us. We'll wrap up here. Um, the big idea again is fasting and feasting. Jesus gives meaning to both uh, phases of our life, to both disciplines in the spiritual world that we walk in. He gives meaning to the times when we have uh, a party, when we have fun. He gives meaning to the times when we're grieving and hurting. And so we want to continue to encourage you over the next several weeks to purposely practice these things, to um, call one another towards both fasting and feasting in a way that is fulfilled in Jesus. And I just want to remind you one more time what it says in Colossians. It says uh, that all of these old covenant festivals, the ceremonies, these laws, all of these things are shadows of what is to come. He says this in Colossians 2. 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And so no matter what spiritual practice you're engaging in, the point is to see that Jesus is the actual solution. He is the fulfillment to come to him for rest. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that you love us and you invite us to yourself. You invite us into relationship with you. And so, God, as we embark on this uh, wrestling match with these ancient spiritual practices, we pray that Christ would be magnified, that your work on our behalf would be lifted up, that we would find ourselves whole in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.